Once again, he is risen. It's very nice to see all of you this morning. And if you did not get a Bible on the first pass, raise your hand. We'd love to get one to you. And when you get one, please join me in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, if you're visiting this morning and you're not familiar with what we're doing right now and what this book is in your laps, you can turn to the table of contents in the front. You will see 1 Corinthians down a ways. And we are in chapter 15. You can turn there. And what's happening right now is for about the next 50 minutes or so, that's 5-0, not 1-5. One 1-5 five. One five is the introduction. For the next 50 minutes, we are going to be exposing what God's word says because we believe that this book is not myths, fables, and fairy tales. We do not believe that this book is merely a record of religious experiences, spiritual hunches, and speculations about the divine. No, this book is the very word of God that he has spoken to us. And so we revere the word because it shows us the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so with that said, we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And on this Resurrection Sunday, we will be taking time looking at various verses from 1 Corinthians 15 regarding Jesus' resurrection. And so for those of us who know Christ, the aim of the message this morning is to glorify our triune God, and to strengthen our faith. And if you don't know Jesus, perhaps you're considering or investigating, or maybe you've never even thought about Jesus, this is going to be an argument from his word of why you should have strong confidence that you should give the entirety of your life and build it around Jesus Christ. So without further ado, beginning in verse 12, I'm going to read verses 12 to 19 to set God's word before us, pray, And then we'll get into the message. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God. Because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep, that is died in Christ, have perished. And if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Well, this is God's word. Let's look to him together in prayer. Father, through your word, you have set before us life and death, darkness and light, truth and lies. You have set before us 
the centerpiece of our faith, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you have made clear to us that if Jesus has not been raised from the grave, as we're celebrating this morning, then we should pack up and go home right now. And so we pray by your grace and from your word and and more that you would move in every heart this morning to accomplish all your will. And our desire is to see the lost saved, the hurting healed, and the wayward brought back, and all of us strengthened to be more like Jesus to his glory, our joy, and our neighbor's good. So Lord, please give us understanding according to your word, and let us rejoice at it like one who finds great treasure. To that end, would you let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, and all of God's people said, Amen. In chapter 3 of Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis said this, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that most people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I do not accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says that he's a poached egg. Or else he would be the devil of hell himself. You must make your choice. Either Jesus was and is the son of God. Or else he was a madman. Or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him. You can kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at Jesus' feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about Jesus being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. Indeed, he did not intend to. C.S. Lewis is right. And his words are right this morning. There are only two options with Jesus. He is either wonderfully true... Or Jesus is horribly false. And we are either making the best decision of our lives to gather together and sing his praises. Or we are fools worthy of all pity. And the Bible itself, as we read a few moments ago, rests the claim of Jesus' lordship on his resurrection from the grave. If Jesus rose, everything he said and did is true. If the resurrection is a figment of imagination, then nothing Jesus said is true. It's all false and he is a horrible liar. If Jesus did not rise from the grave, the cross was a powerless lie. Jesus was a fake and we are miserable fools. But if Jesus did rise from the grave, then the Bible, all of it, is true And God demands and is worthy of nothing less than the total devotion and dedication of your whole life. 
to not dabble in and play at Christianity. You either reject it outright or embrace it in full. There is no middle ground. And that's what this sermon is about this morning. My aim is to present to you why you should confidently base and build your whole life on the truth and historical veracity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so the sermon this morning comes to us in four points. The outline is fourfold, and we will be in various places in 1 Corinthians 15. The first point is this. Christianity rises or falls with the resurrection of Jesus. Christianity rises or falls with the resurrection of Jesus. And we will look once again at verses 12 to 19 to explore that further. Point number two, four objections and responses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Four objections and responses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Point number three, four evidences of the resurrection of Jesus. And then we will close our time in the fourth point with three glorious truths of Jesus' resurrection for believers. If you believe in Jesus and entrust your life into him, is the resurrection merely the most amazing event that ever occurred, or is there more to it as it impacts your life? That's the fourth point. Well, let's jump right in. Point number one, Christianity rises or falls with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's hear those opening verses again, verses 12 through 19. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? And if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God. Because we testified about God that he raised Christ. Whom he did not raise, if it's true, that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And then those who have died in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. As you look at the Bible in your lap, especially in verses 17 and 18 and 19, the apostle rests. He draws the line. The entire Christian faith, all of our theology, all that we believe, even indeed the fate of every soul hinges upon whether or not Jesus got up from the grave after three days dead. If Jesus did not raise from the grave as he said he would, and as the, promise, as the Bible promises he would, if Jesus did not raise, he was a liar. The Bible is lying to us. And we are lying about God. And therefore, if Jesus has not risen, his cross is meaningless, and we have no hope in this world or the next. In fact, there is no hope. There is 
no hope under the sky apart from the promises of Jesus Christ, his death on the cross and his resurrection. And if he is not raised, there is no hope for humanity. Eternity and everything in it hinges upon the resurrection of Jesus. Now, this is a big book. And this book is about the worst news in all the world. And this book is about the best news in all the world. The centerpiece. The central claims of Christianity revolve around our one God in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The truth of the Bible says that God made us in His image. And He made each of us to rule on the earth on His behalf. But ever since the Garden of Eden, every single human being, each one of us, have turned to our own way. We have disregarded God. We have broke His good, life-giving law, sinning against Him. Each of us is guilty. No one can say that he is innocent, according to God. Every single human being resides under the grueling weight of condemnation by God, guilty and worthy of eternal punishment in the hell of God's wrath. There is no worse news. There is no greater plight. There is no more horrible statement than those very words that we are under the piercing and gazing eye of God and his searching wrath against our meh, against him, our indifference, our organizing our lives. If God is not the triune God, the gravitational center of our lives, we are living for something or someone else other than him, and that is called sin. And that's why it's the worst news. That is what's wrong with the world. Underneath all the symptoms of problems that we see, the symptoms, there's an underlying sickness, and that is human indifference and human rebellion against God. Not in the abstract, but you and me. That is the worst news. And God is proven right and justified in his damnation of sinners. That's the worst. But God had a plan. God is love. God is gracious. God is just. And God's plan from all time is to rescue us from that very plight, namely ourselves and our sins against Him. God has had a plan for the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, to become flesh, born of the Virgin Mary, truly God, truly man, truly us, yet without sin. And his name, maybe you've heard it, is Jesus. For Jesus to live in our place. And Jesus' life was perfect. It was sinless. It was sinless obedience and perfect love to God. And he lived in our place doing what we couldn't do for ourselves. Because we can't earn favor with God. And more than that, what Jesus did is then he lived in our place, but then he got up on that cross and carried our sins upon his shoulders and became sin for us. Jesus got on the cross as our substitute to atone for our sin. That's what we call Good Friday good. 
the worst day in human history is also the best day in human history because it's at that day where the, where the, the perfect one, Jesus, atoned for our sins, removing God's wrath from us forever, buried, and then the claim, rising from the grave. Why? Because death could not hold him. He was not guilty. The penalty of sin is death and eternal death. And Jesus is not guilty of sin. He bore our sin, took it to the grave and rose victoriously from it. And when Jesus rose, he began the new creation. And this offer of deliverance, this offer of salvation from God's eternal wrath. And by the way, Jesus is God's instrument of wrath. This offer of salvation, this good news is freely offered to any and all of you who are willing to believe in Jesus and repent of your sins, meaning turn from false belief, wrong belief, turn from your opinions and turn to God's truths, turn away from a way of life organizing around yourself organized around God, repenting of those things that displease him and turning to do those things that please him all by faith, not to earn his favor, but because Jesus gives you his favor. This is a free gift. It's a free offer to be saved. The Bible tells us is to undergo a heart transformation in which we ourselves become new creation. We become adopted into God's family no longer objects of wrath, but adopted daughters and sons and objects of eternal love. We become filled with God's spirit and it is his joy to indwell us. And we have the promise of eternal glory with King Jesus in new glorified bodies on a new physical heavens, a new physical earth, and more. That's all the good news. Eternal wrath, horrible news, and all that Jesus has done, proven through his resurrection, the good news that you merely need to believe and turn to him. And all of that good news and so much more that the Bible says hangs in the balance on whether Jesus rose from the grave or not. If Jesus didn't rise, everything I just said is false. And you have no hope. There is no salvation. And the world is worse than you can imagine. And if Jesus did rise, it's all true. And you have something set before you that is far more exquisitely wonderful than you could possibly ever dream up. A God who saves us despite ourselves. For 2,000 years, people have tried to disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ in order to debunk and do away with Christianity. And for 2,000 years, people have failed. And they will continue to fail. For it really happened. Jesus really did get up. And you can't suppress the truth for long. So investigating the resurrection which we will do in the next two points. Investigating the re- resurrection is not about test tubes, lab reports, and repeatable experiments. We are dealing with, it's not, it's not scientific investigation, we're dealing with evidential historical investigation. 
It's about historical evidence taking the witness stand and giving witness after witness to the plausibility and veracity of Jesus Christ rising from the grave for our justification and the glory of the triune God. Now, there's a number of objections out there, and there's a number of evidences out there. As I mentioned, we're going to look at four objections with responses and then four additional evidences. So as we move into the second point, here are four objections with responses to Jesus' resurrection. These four are the leading arguments of why people think you should not believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Number one, the swoon theory. Now that's an old word, uh, fainting. Um, fainting theory. What does this mean? Some have objected to the resurrection by claiming that Jesus merely fainted on the cross rather than died. However, consider this. Consider the facts of the crucifixion. Jesus had been awake for over 36 hours. He had been beaten, tortured, flogged, which means a a whip with nine tails with bone, ceramics, and or glass in it, whipped across his back, taking most of the flesh off his back. He had gone into systemic shock, exhaustion, dehydration, and crucifixion, which puts out of limb, puts out of joint, all the joints in the arms. And the death by crucifixion is actually suffocation asphyxiation and so horrible was crucifixion that they made a word to describe the pain it it incurred was excruciating and then afterwards when it was believed that jesus was dead rather than fainted professional roman soldiers pierced his side with a spear in which water and blood came out and they did that to kill and verify those who were killed And these professionals judged Jesus to be dead and removed him from the cross. And then in his burial preparation, with no life in his body, he was wrapped in heavy grave cloths. Something that could have been upwards of 70 pounds of of grave cloths wrapped tightly around his body. Then he was placed, his body was, in a tomb under Roman guard and the religious leadership, the Jews' knowledge, That for three days, he was buried there. And therefore, for three days in this tomb with the Roman guard, on top of that, he did not have additional fluids. He did not have more food or any care to his wounds. And so now he's over 84 hours. So we're then to believe on this theory that somehow Jesus gathered enough strength to wake up to unwrap himself and break out of the heavy grave cloths, to shout or somehow speak through the grave and the heavy stone to the Roman soldiers. Maybe he moved it himself, they speculate. And then to be heard by the very ones who tried to execute him, the Roman soldiers and the Jewish religious leaders, and then somehow overcome them and escape. This is beyond reason and beyond any notion of physiology and medicine 
there is no plausible way that this could be true, that all of that happened among so many witnesses who wanted him to die and then to say that he merely fainted on the cross. This simply is a foolish speculation. How does this account even more so, interestingly, later for Jesus' appearances to various people on the day of his resurrection in a fully healed body except for the wounds in his hands and feet and side. So the scars on his brow from the crown of thorns, the beating on his back from being flogged, healed. How does that account with that much medical-induced trauma or, or tortured having taken place that then heal of those things and to be able to walk around? Where was the guard and why didn't they do anything to stop Jesus? And why does secular history not record this as an actual course of events. We have access to many written materials and historical documents who rejected Jesus, but yet nonetheless reported that he rose from the grave and appeared. And they don't report this theory of having fainted or swooned on the cross. So the answer then to this objection is not found in the swoon theory. You should reject it outright for the silliness that it is. Number two, here's a second theory, the stolen body theory. Now, this theory posits that the Roman guards who were specifically placed at the tomb under the knowledge of both the Romans and the unbelieving Jews under the religious leaders, and the reason they were placed there is that the religious leaders feared that the disciples would sneak in, steal his body, Jesus' body, then claimed that he rose from the grave. That's why they put the guard there in the first place. Thus, the Jews and the Romans were outfitted militarily and vigilant for an attempt to steal the body. They were prepared for this very event to stop it. So this begs a question. How then did a group of non-military trained fishermen and peasants overrun the most elite armed guard and Roman soldiers in existence at the time. How does this account if they stole the body for the numerous resurrection appearances? How did Jesus get out of the tomb? Because again, when I say how does this account for the resurrection appearances to steal his body and then for Jesus to walk around presumes the fainting theory had to be true, that he was still alive. So if they stole the body, his body was dead. So how does he get up and have all the eyewitness accounts of him appearing many times in many places to many people? This doesn't account for that. This answer, the answers to these questions are not found in the stolen body theory. As we will see soon, it's also unthinkable that Jesus' followers would die gruesome, painful deaths, ostracized from their own families, for a lie. We'll get there in the next point. So the stolen body theory flies against all the historical evidence and a plausible argumentation. Number three, a third theory that's put forward is the imposter theory. The reason that this needs to be taken seriously, though I do not think it's a serious claim, is because this is what Islam teaches. So Quran, in the Quran, in Surah 4, 157, 
it is taught that Jesus did not die on the cross, someone else did. So let's explore that. Let's think through the fanciful claims of that. One, there's just simply no evidence. The Romans didn't believe that. The Jewish religious leaders who wanted Jesus to die didn't believe that. And all of his followers didn't believe that, that it was an imposter. And if you recall, Jesus' own mother Mary and his close friends, it would assume that she couldn't recognize him. And they couldn't recognize him. Now, to be sure and to be honest, he was beaten in his face. And so he was marred. He, he, did, he, he did have a disfigured look. But for a mom and 100% of the people to not know that it was Jesus and oops, it was somebody else flies against all logic. So it presume then for this to be true that it was an imposter. This means that when Jesus was praying in the garden and Judas came up and betrayed him with a kiss to identify Jesus, either Judas got the wrong Jesus because Jesus was immediately captured. And that's where all of the trials begin to take place and unfold across the evening. And that would mean that Judas was mistaken and the disciples were mistaken and the religious leaders were mistaken that somehow they got an imposter. And that means that even Judas then shouldn't have committed suicide by hanging himself because it really didn't betray Jesus. It was an imposter. And then if they were all in on this sham, if all the disciples knew, oh, they grabbed the wrong person, let's let him die instead and we'll secretly keep Jesus alive, it still then does not stand to reason that all these people would still painfully die and give their lives, be beheaded and crucified upside down and crucified and boiled in oil and more. That's the next point. Dying gruesome deaths for a lie. It, it just, the imposter theory simply does not stand. It is not grounded in history and there is no historical attestation that anyone thought that before Muhammad wrote it and put it in the Quran. And the fourth and final, again, these are the four main objections. The fourth and final objection is the hallucination theory. Sometimes, uh, so Bart Ehrman, he's apostate, he has called this bereavement visions. And so this, is, this was a, a theory that had died and fallen out of, because no one believed it for decades and decades. And then Bart Ehrman has revived it as a bereavement vision. And so let's address this. What, what's the idea? is that, yes, Jesus died on the cross. Yes, Jesus was buried in the tomb, or his dead body was put in there. But then everybody was so sad and so bereaved that they had a group hallucination experience. And so what they thought they were seeing was simply their emotions on being projected and on display. So although rarely put forward anymore, this theory arises that they simply were so sad they saw Jesus. But here's the thing with a, a vision or a hallucination. That's a private experience. It's not a public group experience. A group of people, this was not mass hypnosis either. What we have here is a group of people, for this public occurrence to happen, the idea of a hallucination, perhaps you could argue in one moment that it happened. 
But the historical accounts is that this does not account for the various times, various locations across 40 days before he ascended into heaven. The bereavement vision or hallucination theory does not account for the different groups at different times seeing Jesus and it does not account for the fact that Jesus was touched by them. And he ate and drank in front of them many times and in many places. Therefore, the hallucination theory or bereavement visions simply does not stand. One person, perhaps we could argue that. Maybe some strange mass hypnosis in one event, maybe. But across multiple people, multiple times, touched eating, drinking, and more, different groups, it just flies in the face of coherent thought. So each of these four objections are, in my estimation, and of many people, extremely weak and intellectually dishonest. They reveal a prior commitment to unbelief rather than a willingness to believe what is true. And that's the question set before you today. Do you want the truth to be true or do you want what you believe to be true? Because to be intellectually honest and humble of heart is to follow the truth wherever it leads you, no matter the cost, because the truth is true. But if you hold on to belief despite evidence and more, well, we are being dishonest. So what we're really left here, at least with these four main objections, here's what we're left with. Jesus really did die. Jesus really was buried in a publicly known location guarded by military elites. And yet somehow, some way, Jesus began to talk. Jesus began to eat. Jesus began to teach. He began to drink. He began to appear to people who could touch him three days after he had been buried. That's what we're left with. So now point number three then is this. Four evidences for the resurrection. So that was seeking to dismantle the objections. And now let's put on the mantle, as it were, for evidences of why we should believe in the resurrection. Number one, and these all kind of interrelate. Number one, four evidences for Jesus' resurrection. Number one, Jesus was buried in a tomb with public knowledge. Now we've kind of addressed that in the previous points. It was public knowledge. Everyone knew where the tomb was. So there's an idea that it went to the wrong tomb. Nonsense. But here's the question. The whole reason the Romans and the Jews killed Jesus in the first place was to stop the Jesus movement. They were not for it. They were against it. They didn't want to see it expand. So the question is this. If suddenly all of these resurrection appearances are circulating all around and people are actually seeing Jesus, why didn't the Romans, why didn't the, the Jewish leaders, why didn't the naysayers walk up to the publicly known tomb, move the rock, and produce Jesus' body? They didn't want Christianity to grow. Their goal was not to enact persecution later on because, remember, the Jewish leaders feared the Romans would come in and destroy them, which they did in the year 70. Why didn't they produce Jesus' body to stop the false claims of a false resurrection? 
They could have walked to the tomb, presented his body right there, and shown it to the public. They could have put him on public display, and they did not. Why? Because the body wasn't there. And they didn't have a body to produce. And they didn't even try getting a fake body of a different lookalike. And put him forward. Because everybody who witnessed Jesus. Could have come forward and said. That's not him. Mary could have said. That's not my son. Jesus brothers and sisters. Could have said. That's not our elder brother. That could not have happened. So. If you're doubting the resurrection. You must. Address. This claim. Why did they not produce the body when their whole goal was to stop Christianity, not cause Christianity to explode? Number two, number two, thinking about witnesses take the stand. The second evidence for Jesus' resurrection is the historical record of resurrection appearances. Now, as I said at the beginning, don't confuse categories. We're not running a scientific experiment that's repeatable and observable and measurable. That's, that's a wrong category. We're dealing with historical evidence. Just like a court of law, we have people take the witness stand and say, I saw it, I experienced it. And then they put forward the documentation and writings and use that as evidence, all admissible in a court of law. We're dealing with historical evidence. So the second point is the historical record of resurrection appearances. Now, outside the Bible, there are many records by unbelievers, by Romans, of the claims that Jesus rose, and they're put forward as fact. That at the very least, that's what his believers, that's what believers believed, that Jesus rose. But in the Bible, the Bible itself gives historical record. There is historical record witnessing that Jesus died. That's not disputed. And later appeared alive, healthy, and hungry after three days. And he continued to appear for 40 days to hundreds of people at various times in various places and various contexts. And of the hundreds and hundreds of eyewitnesses, none of them came forward to the Romans or the religious leaders to refute the claim. No one snuck up and did did a a Judas move and said, hey, we're all making this up. It's fake. Put me up and I'll, I'll take the stand and tell you how we're making up this entire lie. Exactly zero people did that. And said document after historical document, claim after claim. In fact, when Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 15, many of the people were still alive. So you could fact check and go, view, go interview eyewitnesses to see if in fact it was true. So no one was given a platform by the Jews. There was not a counter uprising to say they're all making it up. No, you must not only deal with why a body wasn't produced, you must also deal with the fact that there is copious amounts of historical witness writings and attestation that it actually happened. People believed it happened. They believed it happened. It may not have happened, but multitudes believed it happened. Therefore, you must, with intellectual honesty, deal with those claims. And number three, three and four are similar. Number three, the third evidence for Jesus' resurrection is this. The transformation of the Jewish disciples such that they would die. 
for the truth that Jesus rose. Now, let's think through this together. Here's my question. And this question strengthens my faith. Who would die for a lie? Now, we can look to false messiahs. We can look to cults that have committed mass suicide. So there does exist in human history. But this situation with Jesus and the Jesus movement and Christianity and its claims are markedly different from mass suicide. Who would die for a lie? Let's think about this. These people didn't drink poison, fall asleep, and die. Let's listen. Jesus' followers, all of them faced fierce persecution. Their own children betrayed them. Their own parents betrayed children. Families disowned them. Kicked out of the community They were ridiculed, they were betrayed, they had loss, their possessions were stolen, their their homes were taken from them, persecution broke out, and they had to flee as refugees to other places. They had general hardship, all of them. The ancient Fox's Book of Martyrs records, for example, how all All of Jesus' apostles were executed with gruesome deaths, including beheading, crucifixion, Peter is believed to be crucified upside down, John was believed to have been boiled in oil, he survived that, and so they put him on an island to die. It does not stand to reason that 100% of Jesus' followers would stand by a lie if it was a lie, if they had stolen the body. If the resurrection appearances were all lies, but somehow they had to orchestrate that with all the hundreds and hundreds of people, it does not stand to reason that not one person would break their silence. That that one father would look at the persecution of his children and his wife being hauled off to jail and would would know that if he just renounced Christ, he'd have his home back, his job back, his wife back, and his kids back. No one renounced. They all said, I'll die for Jesus. That is a radical, unexplainable transformation unless it's explained by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Something so monumental, so life-changing happened in a moment that they would be willing to be boiled in oil and more. It just simply doesn't stand to reason. Instead, we see a group of people once hiding, now empowered, fearlessly preaching Jesus' resurrection to the world at any cost, even the cost of their own lives, and they gave their lives with joyful trust. And when persecution exploded in Israel, the multitudes held on to their faith. They didn't buckle under it, because many of them saw the risen Christ too. And then you add to this the notable conversion of the guy who wrote this book, Paul. Paul, who was called Saul, you may recall, was the lead persecutor of Christianity. He hated Jesus so much, he hated Christians so much that he got permission from the religious leaders to go through homes, put people in jail, torture them, and kill them, and take all their possessions because he hated Jesus and then he, and he hated Christians. So Christians began to flee, and he would go to other towns to chase them. And then this man claims to have had a post-resurrection experience with Jesus Christ. 
that in the blink of an eye changed his life. This guy who was a radical religious leader, a Pharisee, he was the strictest of strict. He sought to kill people who he thought were destroying his faith. And now he became one of those people he was trying to kill because he believed the truth of that faith in such that he was beheaded himself. How do you explain that? How do you explain not just a small group of people in a jungle taking poison, but multitudes willing to give their lives horribly, yet joyfully for Jesus? With so many chances for so many people at so many times to recant in the face of extreme persecution, instead they clung to their faith. The most plausible explanation is that they were telling the truth Jesus got up. Jesus got up. And related to this, the fourth point, and it's really connected with what we saw with Paul a moment ago, not just who would die for a lie, but the fourth point is this, the explosive, rapid expansion of a whole new world view among Jews and Romans and more. All the first Christians were Jewish. They all experienced a theological revolution overnight that introduced them to the fact that God was one God in three persons, a triune God. Overnight, at the sight of Jesus, they shifted from worshiping Yahweh to worshiping Jesus as Yahweh in the flesh, the second person of the Trinity. They moved from Sabbath-keeping to Sunday-keeping. The Lord's Day, because it's the day that Jesus rose. They embraced the new covenant of Jesus and moved away from the old covenant of Moses. The sheer radical nature of an overnight group shift, explosive expansion of a brand new worldview is simply defies reason if it was all made up and didn't happen and not a lie. And wasn't grounded in the resurrection. The Jews were so fastidious with their Bible, with their theology and Bible keeping. That these changes were so radical for them. And even more so, history records that would-be messiahs did rise up. And they did gather hundreds of followers. And then they were killed. And guess what happened to all of their messianic groups? They went home but not the Jesus movement. It exploded and expanded across the world. Not Jesus. At the empty tomb, everything changed. The apostles appealed in their preaching to the empty tomb as the catalyst for this theological upheaval. The resurrection best explains this explosive expansion. And one other piece related to this. There is no other religion There's no other philosophy. There's no other belief system like Christianity. Every system in the world requires you to work to earn God's favor, to make yourself better, to put yourself in a good position with the God or the gods, the fates, or whatever it is. Only Christianity honestly reveals to you what you can't do, what's wrong with the world, and only Christianity explains that God has done for us everything we can't do for ourselves and freely offers you that salvation. 
That's why Christianity is good news. It's the message of what God has done for you, not what you should do for God. And that's so radical. And so here we have in these points, we've looked at the fainting theory. We've looked at the stolen body theory. We've looked at the imposter theory. We've looked at the hallucination theory. We've asked about Jesus buried in a public tomb and his body not being produced. The historical records of multitudes of people who believed and witnessed, we saw Jesus risen. The plausibility of people dying for a lie, not plausible. And lastly, the explosive expansion of a new worldview. Listen, Christians do not have a blind faith. No, we have a reasoned, historical, intellectually honest faith. Evidence does not undo faith, it strengthens it. These witnesses, these eight we've looked at, have taken the stand, arguments, counter-arguments against the resurrection, arguments for the resurrection. I am convinced by these. I know that many of you are too. But friend, if you don't know Jesus, don't reject Jesus based on how you feel or your hunches, or your perspectives or attitudes. You, like a judge, must address the evidence. If you don't yet follow Jesus, you must take all of these claims seriously. Remember, Christianity itself says Christianity rises or falls with the resurrection. Everything hangs upon Jesus. Indeed, your eternal destiny hangs on Jesus. So don't walk out these doors and let these ideas go away. There is a cost. You do need to count it. And Jesus is worth that cost. It means something to follow the Savior. But as we move into the last point, is the resurrection of Jesus merely the most amazing miracle of all creation? Do we just need to argue against, with evidence about what's plausible and what's not plausible? Or in other words, is there more to the resurrection? What does... Jesus' resurrection do for those who believe. So if even in these moments your heart is convinced and you're turning yourself to Jesus and Jesus is welcoming you as his savior, what are the benefits? What does the resurrection do for us? Three things. We'll look at these here in 1 Corinthians and they're going to go by quick. Number one, look up at verse three here in 1 Corinthians 15. Verse three. What are the glorious truths of Jesus' resurrection? What does it mean that he rose? Verse 3, the apostle writes, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins. You know what that means? That means that when Jesus rose from the grave... When he broke the teeth of death and the fangs of Satan and walked out, Jesus' resurrection vindicates and validates all that he said and all that he did in life and death. And that means he really is the Savior. And it means that because Jesus went onto that cross to die for our sins, he carried your sins 
to the cross and carry them away on the cross. Jesus really did satisfy God's wrath against you. You can be rescued from God's wrath and brought into his love when you believe that Jesus is God in the flesh, died on the cross for your sins and rose from the grave. Jesus really did take our sins and remove them as far as the east is from the west. He trampled them underfoot. He cast them behind his back. He threw them into the depths of the sea, the Bible tells us. Jesus really did wash away our sin in his blood. Friend, if you're not a believer, the guilt that you bring in here that you try to suppress, the shame that you bring into this room that you try to to find other ways to remove or to forget about, those are gifts by God's Spirit to show you of your need of Jesus who alone can take away your guilt and shame. Come to Jesus. Believe in Him. He's washed away your sin. The penalty of your sins past, present, and future are taken by Jesus on the cross. There is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's what the resurrection means. The work is done. There's no work for you to do. Only believe Jesus right now is seated very comfortably on the throne of the universe. Right now, you can turn from your sin and turn to Jesus in faith and have the work of Christ applied to you. Do it. Believe in the Savior. And and more, dear Christian, maybe you are entangled with sin. Your defenses are lost and you just give in. Maybe you, you have moved away from Christ. You still claim in your heart, but, but you know the story of the prodigal. And you say, that's me. This morning, at this time, 10, 19 a.m., Jesus Christ is calling you back to him. Because he loves you. And he wants you home. Come back to Jesus and believe. No middle ground. No lukewarmness. Either reject him and go on or believe. And he is worthy of all belief. The glorious truth of Jesus' resurrection is that he has atoned for our sins. Praise God. And the second, there's more. There's a lot more. The second is this. Look down at verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. Note this word. This is verse 20. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The Underline this. First fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Verse 21. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. Verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall be made alive. So, what does God do? Is he just have low grade anger and frustration with you all the time? I put my son on the cross for you. Isn't that enough? I took your sins away. Isn't that enough? Now quit messing around. Stop sinning and get out of my face. Is that what God is like? No, he is not. If you look at these verses, first fruits, what does that mean? Just as a tree produces the crop across a season. And those first fruits 
of that crop signal the quality of the rest of the crop across the season? When Jesus rose in glory with a glorified body, he was the first fruits of our resurrection. So it's not just that our sins have been removed, if you could even minimize that, but now all the work of Christ is applied to us. God looks at us and sees Jesus in us, and more than that, because Jesus conquered the grave and rose, we will conquer the grave and rise in Christ also. Jesus rose in a glorified body. All believers will rise in glorified bodies. In other words, not only are our sins removed forever, we are gifted with the unshakable promise that we too will rise in glory with glorified bodies. We will dwell for eternity where each day is better than the last. We will dwell on the new glorified earth in the pleasurable presence of God to world without end. That's what we get. That's what God wants to do for us. As surely as Jesus rose, he will rise us on that last day. And that's not a cross your fingers wish, but a fortress of hope anchored in heaven. And more than that, the reality of future resurrection. Now get this, there's just more. There's more gems and jewels to cast out of God's Bible. It's not just that we have future resurrection promises. The fact that Jesus rose and has made us a new creation right now, there is a now power to the resurrection. Christians are new creations. We are new humans with new natures. Yes, we have remaining sin. No, we're not yet in glorified bodies. Yes, we are not yet perfected. But even so, we have new hearts and the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit. So the now power of the resurrection is future and now living new lives in Jesus, forgiven lives in Jesus, Jesus loving, and he lives in us now, the church on mission. Because Jesus' resurrection, the character of our lives can change. The content of our lives is changing. The purpose of our lives has changed. The resurrection changes everything now from this day forward. That's the hope. Not just future hope, but hope right now for change in your life. And finally, the last one, number three, verses 24, 25, and 26. Then comes the end when Jesus delivers the kingdom of God, uh, the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule, every authority and power. For Jesus must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. You know what this means? It's not always going to be like this. It sounds cliche, but it's nonetheless true. The best is yet to come. Good Jesus is also a good conqueror. All that is evil, all that is rebellious, all that denies the gospel, Jesus will destroy to consummate his eternal cosmic reign. The free gift of salvation is a counterbalance to the bad news that wrath remains on you if you refuse the gospel. Jesus will eternally destroy the wicked. Destruction is coming. Make no mistake about it. 
Jesus' resurrection guarantees the unalterable reality that he's the king of kings and lord of lords and he will come and overthrow all kingdoms of the earth to unite them under his one kingdom. And you will either be an object of his wrath or an object of his beloved love. Jesus rules over every moment, molecule, and mind of the universe because it all belongs to him. It is all his. And you are either wholeheartedly for Jesus or against Jesus. There's no middle ground. He spits the lukewarm out of his mouth. Jesus will establish peace. He'll remove evil. And the question before us this morning is this. What side of the gospel will you be found on? I think the evidence is strong. And the story of the gospel is infinitely compelling to believe in the goodness of the Savior who is honest about what's wrong with you and the world and what he has done to make it right. Will you be found in Christ on that day with your sins washed away, adopted by the Father, filled with the Spirit, on mission with the church? Or will you be found against Christ and discover to your horror that you were wrong all along in rejecting Jesus? Friends, come to Jesus. Believe in him. Like the psalmist says, cry out, I believe, Lord. I am yours. Save me. Or the man in Jesus' parable, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Come to Jesus and have your sins washed away finally and fully forever. Be reconciled to God. Declare your allegiance to the Son incarnate and find your life in him. Find that you love him because he first loved you. And if you're a Christian, just out wandering in the fields, doing your own thing, what's right in your own eyes, come back to Jesus. And dear church, brothers and sisters, be strengthened in our Savior. What we believe has concrete, intellectually honest evidence to cast our whole lives on the Savior. You believing in Jesus was the best decision and truest decision you've ever made. Praise God for that. We worship a good and gracious Savior. He is Lord. He is risen. Lord, we worship you and now dedicate our hearts and minds to you and pray that you would loose our mouths and hearts in worship of you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.